Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, and uh, today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's story on Protect the Adirondacks, Inc. lawsuit against the DEC over a road in the wilderness. Then Willie Terry recorded Reverend Al Sharpton's speech to the National Action Network about Tyree Nichols and police brutality. Later on, Eunice Jung interviews Megan Hetfield of Harm Reduction Works about an upcoming screening of Love in the Time of Fentanyl and health care for drug users. After that, we reach into our archives for a Women and Grains Food Diary by Amy Halloran. And finally, Jody Cowan visits the studio to talk about how his work on Youth Media Sanctuary led to a job at WAMC. But first, here are the headlines. Rosemary Coles has resigned as a member of the Board of Education for the Troy City School District following her arrest in a nationwide drug and weapons bust. Early COVID-19 variants that no longer circulate among humans are surging among New York's white-tailed deer, raising questions about whether the mammals could become a reservoir for wiped-out versions of the coronavirus. In addition, a new study has found the symptoms of long COVID can last as long as three months after a person has tested positive for COVID-19. The Albany Black Chamber of Commerce and Social Club kicked off the start of Black History Month Wednesday by unveiling its new home at the former University Club building in the heart of downtown Albany. The The group's mission is to empower Black entrepreneurship and drive economic growth in the city. The Times Union reports that after 10 years of planning, digging, and laying twin 36-inch water mains, Troy is ready to complete the first phase of its Tom Hannock water transmission line replacement project and directly connect the new mains to the treatment plant. The mains will carry 21 million gallons of water daily from the Tom Hannock Reservoir in Pittstown, to the treatment plant from where the water flows to 135,000 customers in the cities of Troy, Rensselaer, as well as the towns of East Greenbush, North Greenbush, uh, Brunswick, Scaticoke, and Posenkill in Rensselaer County. The town of Half Moon and Village of Waterford in Saratoga and the Village of Menands in Albany County. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. First up tonight, the project, the Protect the Adirond. <laughs> Excuse me. So first we have Protect the Adirondacks, Inc. has filed a lawsuit against the State Department of Environmental Conservation demanding that a one-mile stretch of wilderness road be returned to nature and that barriers be erected to prevent using it. Chris Amato, the group's conservation director and counselor, Council talks about the lawsuit with Mark Dunley. 
We're joined by Chris Amato, who is the Conservation Director and Counsel for Protect the Adirondack. And they have recently filed a lawsuit against the State Department of Environmental Conservation uh, with respect to what was supposed to be sort of a discontinued road in the uh, Western High Peaks Wilderness area within the uh, McIntyre East Track. So, um, Chris, why don't you give us, you know, the 32nd elevator pitch, what does Protect the Adirondack Incorporated, and then why have you filed this lawsuit? Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, so Protect the Adirondacks is a not-for-profit organization that is dedicated to preserving and conserving both the public and private lands that make up the Adirondack Park, which is our wonderful six million acre uh, state park that um, is offers a incredible array of recreational opportunities. And one of the mainstays of the park is the High Peaks Wilderness Complex, which is a massive uh, block of land that has been classified as wilderness. It is owned by the state and it is part of the state forest preserve, which is protected by the New York State Constitution. So our lawsuit involves the illegal construction of a road in the High Peaks Wilderness Complex by the Department of Environmental Conservation. Looking at this, you know, the state had acquired some land, and I, I, I guess there were some old roads in there, and what they were supposedly doing was, you know, taking out old culverts and, and, and bridges, but for some reason they went and, and actually seemed to be upgrading the road, this one-mile stretch. Yeah, that's correct, Mark. So what happened was uh, the state acquired the this tract, which is called the McIntyre East Tract, and it's about 5,000 acres. And in 2018, the McIntyre East Tract was added to the High Peaks Wilderness Complex. And uh, all of the state-owned lands in the park are governed by something called the Adirondack Park State Land Master Plan. And basically what that master plan does is it lays out the ground rules for how DEC is supposed to manage the state-owned lands within the boundaries of the Adirondack Park. In wilderness areas, roads are considered non-conforming uses, uh, no big surprise there. And uh, the basic premise of the master plan is that wilderness areas are supposed to be free of what you would associate with human development. So no roads, no buildings, things of that nature. It's supposed to provide the user with a wilderness experience far from the trappings of civilization. So in accordance with that, DEC, to its credit, uh, came up with a plan in 2019 to address a number of former logging roads that existed in the track because the land before being acquired by the state was uh, in, owned by a private company that managed it for timber production. So there were some former logging roads there and DEC in 2019 proposed a plan to go in there and basically uh, remove the roads and decommission them and what they called rewild them, which was basically just to eliminate the road corridors, make it look more like a uh, natural 
forest landscape rather than a linear flat road corridor. So in 2020 and 2021, they did exactly that. The department went in and they cut up the road and uh, created mounds and, you know, basically made it look more like a natural forest landscape than, than a road corridor. Um, so all that was great. But then in uh, the fall of 2021, for reasons that remain unclear to us, <laughs> the department went in there and rebuilt the road, rebuilt one of the roads that it had previously reclaimed. It had finished reclaiming and decommissioning this road. Um, it had basically returned it to a wild character and then the department just went in and, and redid it. They went in and they regraded it. They recreated the road. They installed a culvert. They installed the bridge. Um, so all of which are prohibited under the master plan and, and, are by, and violate the state land master plan, as well as the unit management plan that controls how the High Peaks Wilderness Complex is supposed to be managed. Well, well, well let me ask you a two-part question then. Is one, you know, has DEC you know, been offering any justification for this action. And and, and second, uh, I assume this is not the first time the issue of roads and wilderness areas in the Adirondacks has been litigated. How does the court tend to, to respond and particularly, you know, what type of deference do they give to, you know, DEC versus, you know, protecting the wilderness? Well, in answer to your first question, uh, when we contacted the department about this and said, what are you doing? They claimed that they weren't rebuilding the road. They were simply going in to fix some what they called drainage issues. Um, uh, but we have been to the site three times and the drainage issues <laughs> that exist are the result of the department reconstructing the road. Uh, there's uh, standing water in the road, uh, in the tracks that the heavy equipment made. Um, there are areas where you have intermittent streams that are running right through and across the road. Um, and we didn't see any evidence that DC had fixed anything. Um, and in any event, it's sort of beside the point because the master plan is very clear that Roads are not allowed in wilderness areas for any purpose, no matter how laudable the purpose may be, um, they're just not allowed. You can't build a road in a wilderness area for any reason whatsoever. So, you know, it, it's almost sort of beside the point, whatever justification DEC may want to offer for this activity, um, this kind of road construction is, is clearly prohibited. And how are the courts, you know, tended to to rule on these type of situations? Well, this is really a case of case of first impression. So there's really no uh, track record to look at in terms of the courts interpreting DEC's actions uh, in a wilderness area like this. So uh, it, there's really no prior cases we can look to for guidance on how the courts will will look at this. Um, now, there is the Adirondack Park Agency, which I guess oversees overall development within the Adirondacks. Um, ha have they weighed in at all on this particular controversy? Well, that's an excellent question, because 
technically the park agency is supposed to be the state's watchdog over what happens on forest preserve lands within the boundaries of the Adirondack Park. So they're supposed to basically uh, make sure that management activities undertaken by DEC on forest preserve lands uh, conform to the state land master plan. So they were the first stop for us. When, when we found out about this, we uh, reached out to the park agency and alerted them and said, hey, you know, there appears to be some road building activity going on in a wilderness area. Uh, <clears throat> and unfortunately, the agency uh, refused to take action. Uh, they claimed that they had concluded there was no violation of the master plan. Now, that's an interesting conclusion since we were able to verify they never even went out to the site. <laughs> so, I mean, that'll give you an idea of the, the level of rigor that the park agency put into its investigation of a potential violation is they didn't even bother to go out there um, to look at what was going on and nevertheless concluded apparently based on what DEC told them that there wasn't a violation. Um, you know, we look at that as an abdication of the agency's responsibility uh, to ensure that DEC complies with the master plan. And because the park agency refused to take any action, um, we were left with the only remaining option, which was to go to court ourselves to correct this violation. Okay. We are out of time. We've been talking with uh, Chris Amato, Conservation Director and Council for Tete Adirondack uh, Incorporated. Chris, you got guys on the website? Yes, we do. It's protecttheadirondacks.org. Thank you very much. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Mark Dunley is our lead climate uh, reporter. And if you're interested in also doing some climate reporting, please email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org to get involved. So on Saturday, January 28th, Hudson Mohawk Magazine's roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended an online webinar of the National Action Network Forum and membership meeting. And this is the first part of a four-part recording showing or hearing where we hear excerpts from Reverend Al Sharpton, who's the president and founder of this organization. And in this, he speaks about police killings and specifically of the recent killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. This is Willie Terry, your roaming labor correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And today, Saturday, February the 28th, I am roaming the internet at the weekly meeting and forum of the National Action Network, better known as NAM, N-A-N. Now, NAM is a civil rights group that was founded in 1991 by the Reverend Al Sharpton. NAM has chapters throughout the United States. NAM is organized around fighting for criminal justice reform police accountability, crisis intake and victim assistance, voting rights, corporate responsibility and pension diversity, youth leadership, and bridging the digital divide. In today's part one labor segment, you will hear 
excerpt analysis of a presentation given by National Action Network founder and president, the Reverend Al Sharpton, on the police killing of Tyrese Nicholson. Reverend Al. We in every generation, in every era of our sojourn in America, there are those issues that capture what it is that we are faced with and that must be resolved. For one era, we had to deal with the problem of slavery. Not just a problem, but it was the most vicious and dehumanizing form of slavery known to man. There have been other forms of slavery, but none where you were robbed of your family. You gotta remember when we were brought here as slaves, we were separated, children from their parents, wives from their husbands, and we were robbed of our own identity where we were named after our masters. I spoke this week for Senator Gillibrand, she had a faith leaders summit in Washington, over 100 ministers from around the state. And I was telling them at the gathering that Senator Gillibrand had, the story that many of you know where they had done a whole background uh, on my family tree and found that my great-grandfather was a slave in South Carolina, owned by the family that produced Strom Thurmond and Alexander Sharpton, who married Strom Thurmond's great aunt, owned my great-grandfather. And I told the story to tell the story that every time I write my name, Cordell, I realize that's not my name. That's the name of those that owned my great-grandfather. I don't know my name. You don't know your name. We're named after what our property brand was. Yet we fought through that. Then went through an era of reconstruction where because we fought in the human Union Army, which we had to fight for the right to get in, and defeated the Confederates. Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing our, those enslaved in the slave states, not in the northern states. And we were freed and were able to fight and use the Reconstruction Era to put over 25 blacks in the Congress. We went through the Reconstruction Era. But then because the Confederates Navy gave up and they fought back, and was able to recapture the country till the days compromised, they backed the troops out of the South, and we went through the era of white terrorism, Ku Klux Klan, citizens, white citizens council, all the way into the 20th century. The NAACP was founded fighting lynching. Urban League after that. We went through that all the way until Jim Crow and where we had to deal with segregation 
and denied public accommodations and denied a right to vote. 1954, Brown versus Board of Education began to turn that cycle around, 55 Voting Rights Act, all the way until 55 was the Montgomery boycott, all the way till we fought and broke Jim Crow with the 64 Civil Rights Act and the voting with 65. What I'm saying is every generation, every era, we've had to face some dominant challenge. Yes, yes. We were brought here to be enslaved. We built the country, never got paid. They tried to make a deal at one point to say, well, let's send them back to Africa, but the chain had been so broken. There was nowhere to send us because they couldn't handle us if we did go back. And we had built a country, why would we walk away and give you something we built? And you enjoy the fruits of our labor. But then we get into the 21st century. And part of what we face this century, that we have faced as long as we've been here, but now it has gotten to a critical point where we're going to have to deal with it, just like in 200 years to deal with slavery. It is time for us to stop and come to terms with policing in America. The definition, the defining issue in the 21st century is going to be policing and voting. Yes, and no matter how much they try to run away from it, it keeps coming back because unless you change the laws, you're just going to keep going from one incident to the next. formed this organization next month 32 years ago right here in Harvard one of the first things we did was I had to go to Los Angeles and lead marches around the beating of Rodney King I remember a good Friday that we took a cross and I took that cross and hundreds of people and led the march on police headquarters in Los Angeles around the beating of Rodney King. And the nation was shocked at seeing that black and white video of police beating Rodney King senselessly over a traffic violation. 1991. Yeah. I remember I stayed close to Rodney. I spoke at his funeral came and did my radio show. And here I am now, in 2023, and I'm looking at another video, this in color, where I'm seeing another black man being beat to death. Rodney did die. This is worse. It's beat to death with no mercy on no crime that they can even find that he had committed. And to make it even more egregious, beat by five black cops. Did you think 
because you was black, we wouldn't say nothing? Did you think that you would hide behind your blackness? I want to say loud and clear that we will fight black cops, white cops, any color cops that commit crimes against us. said to the parents is that what is stunning to me is that if you watch the tape, what they're doing and what they're saying is two different things. They're grabbing him. They got control of him. But they keep saying, give us your hands. Give us your hands. Let's cuff you. They are holding his arms. He's about 140 pounds, there's five of them. They could handcuff him, but what they were trying to do is since they knew they had on body cameras, they were trying to set up a cover-up while they were committing the act. <laughs> Which means they were doing what they were doing intentionally. That was the first excerpt of four we just heard Reverend L. Sharpton speaking to uh, during a webinar to the National Action Network. Willie Terry brought us these excerpts. Reverend L. Sharpton was also gave the eulogy at the funeral of Tyree Nichols. And if you'd like to hear more from this speech, you can go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. And there's also some very, very moving footage online from Tyree Nichols' uh, funeral. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazil Hickey, and you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Share that sh- if you hear a program that you think a friend will like, share it with them, spread the word. That really helps our content get out there and for us to do better work. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Megan Hetfield of Harm Reduction Works is a part of a local resource sharing in collaboration with a local screening of Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Eunice Jung spoke with Megan about the screening, which is followed by an optional training on using Narcan in the event of an overdose. She also spoke about her work with patients of various issues, including those of overdoses. This is Eunice Jung, and today I'm talking to Megan. Welcome, Megan. Can you give us a brief introduction of yourself? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so my name is Megan Headfield. Um, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a peer recovery support specialist, and I'm also someone 
who identifies as no longer having a chaotic relationship with substances. Um, and I'm also um, someone who loves and attends and hosts uh, harm reduction works meetings. Starting off with your work on harm reduction works, HRW, what does harm reduction mean? Yeah, so harm reduction is many things. It's a pragmatic strategy, an evidence-based strategy uh, for meeting people where they're at with their substance use, including alcohol. Um, it can also be applied to things like self-harming and mental health and, you know, um, you know, disordered eating and all types of other things. Uh, but essentially, it's a it's a way to meet people uh, with compassion and find out what their goals are and meet them where they're at to see what they need to reach their own goals. So it's a, it's a, it's a self-determined approach as opposed to a punitive one where you're telling someone, you know, what's wrong with them and what they need to do to fix it. And, um, you know, it's a it's just a really beautiful philosophy too that centers uh, humanity and compassion, dignity and respect. So specifically to drug usage, there is a stigma that comes along with it. Um, how has this prevented quality care for users? And is there any connection in the film Love in the Time of Fentanyl that you would like to make? Oh my gosh, you know, stigma is the biggest barrier. Um, for folks, for all types of issues, especially substance use, you know, it's it's the fact that it's a criminal justice issue and not a public health one in our country, um, and the historical roots um, of racist policies that continue today, you know, make it a highly stigmatized issue. You know, um, you can't see, but I'm wearing a shirt that says "Be nice to drug users." You know, this this shirt gets lots of attention because we're not taught that we're taught, you know, people whose drugs are bad, they're morally corrupt, they're lawbreakers, you know, they must be, there must be something wrong with them. And in, in fact, we should be treating them, you know, the complete opposite, you know, folks who use drugs are some of the most marginalized among us. Um, and this film, Love in the Time of Fentanyl, you know, really captures that it captures the spirit of people treating each other like human beings, you know, despite the fact that using substances might be an aspect of their lives. It is not everything to them. It is not everything they are. It's just a part of their lives. Um, and unfortunately, it's the part of their lives that causes so much grief, you know, due to the criminalization, due to the stigmatization, uh, due to the criminal justice involvement that people have, and they can't seem to break free of that. And uh, the film really, really beautifully captures what happens when you move the stigma out of the way and just treat people like human beings. So moving on from quality care, safe injection sites allow medical supervision for people who want to inject pre-obtained drugs. How does this type of medical aid support individuals in comparison to a detox-only method? Yes, so the um, what you refer to as safe injection sites, which is what some people refer to them as, another name for them is overdose prevention sites. Uh, because essentially that's what they do. You know, they keep people alive um, with a really unstable drug supply. Um, you know, fentanyl is a contaminant, a poison that is found in most illicit uh, powdered or pill substances that are purchased, you know, illicitly outside of a doctor's office or pharmacy. And uh, these centers, um, these overdose prevention centers, you know, center people's lives as, as the most important thing. You know, if you are not able to breathe and be alive, you're unable to uh, complete something like an inpatient detox. So an inpatient detox um, or even an outpatient detox is, is a great um, strategy. It's a great, you know, um, evidence-based treatment for someone that wants to detox, but not everyone is ready for that. 
right? There's many, many factors uh, that would cause someone to not be ready to go through a detox. It can be really hard on the body physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and some people don't have a safe environment to go home to uh, after a detox. And maybe they've tried many times uh, to detox off their substance of choice, but then when they leave, you know, they don't have the right environment to support their healing. Um, you know, it takes many, many things for people to heal and get well. And it's different for everyone. You know, it's not a prescriptive thing. Um, so, you know, the main difference is that the overdose prevention sites or safe injection sites um, in the film are a place where people can continue to be safe while they are deciding what they think is the best thing for them um, in regards to their drug use. And for some of them, they they just don't want to stop. And they all have their own perfectly valid reasons. Speaking of patients, when it comes to this type of sensitive care, um, how do patients themselves react to it? And adding on to physical care and talking about the emotional aspect of patients, how is their mental health being cared for both patients and the people who are helping them out? So, you know, oftentimes uh, the way we approach uh, substance use treatment in our country is very uh, siloed, right? So on one hand, you have mental health agencies and mental health treatment. And on the other side is, is the addiction, the substance use. And sometimes like in a detox floor, for example, they'll be across the hall from each other, even though there's overlap for, you know, mental health and substance use are not exclusive um, aspects of a person, right? So um, there's a lot of separation between those two things. Both have a lot of stigma, right? We have a lot of stigma for people with mental health challenges, just like people who use drugs. And they're often treated as separate from one another. And much of the time, you can't simultaneously treat um, both things. And that's really hard for someone because it's impossible to separate for a lot of people their mental health challenges from their substance use. Many, many people are actually self-medicating for mental health challenges of all kinds. For, for, for people to go to treatment for their substance use, most, if not all people, also want to address their other issues, whether it be mental health or even physical health. So until we can come up with a, a comprehensive care system that allows people to treat their whole body and mind, um, as opposed to only taking a look at their substance use, sometimes if people receive care for their mental health and physical health, they will naturally choose to use less substances or use in a less risky way. Is there anything that you would like to add on to this conversation as a last note? Yeah, I just want to shout out, you know, Harm Reduction Works. Um, it's a really beautiful uh, space that people can attend of all kinds um, online. And there are some uh, in-person meetings throughout the country uh, where you can be met, you know, right where you're at in your in your life, whether it's, you know, you want to abstain from all substances, whether you're looking to cut back on some and not others, whether you're just looking for some support and community. Um, it's a space that people can come and, and you know, be met where they're at with their own self-determined goals, you know, without the stigma, without the shame, uh, without having to, quote unquote, like hit rock bottom or anything like that. It's a very welcoming community um, it's a safe place also for family and friends of people who are using substances. There are meetings that are specific for, for family and friends and loved ones and parents to get support and to learn more about harm reduction and how they can help the person they care about stay safer and ultimately stay alive. Um, so it's a really beautiful space and I, I'm, I'm really excited for people to learn about it. 
Well, thank you, Megan, for joining me today. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about what we've discussed, please check out hrh413.org and the recent film Love in the Time of Fentanyl. That was the Eunice Jung part of her series looking at um, stigmas in the healthcare system. And that screening, just again, Life in the Time of Fentanyl, already screened in Saratoga this Saturday, February 4th, from 3 to 6. It's at Albany Barn. And um, it will be followed by the optional Narcan training. So next, Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Amy, Amy Halloran had uh, extensive work on a series um, food diaries. And so we reached into our archives in which she spoke with baker Don Woodward of Eve- Evelyn's Crackers in Toronto. Here it goes. Hi, I'm Amy Halloran and you're here for another food diary. We are talking today on our Women in Grains segment with Dawn Woodward from Evelyn's Crackers in Toronto. Dawn, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So let's tell our listeners a little bit about your business and your growth um, in regional grains. Sure. So we started about 10 years ago. The business is primarily uh, myself and my husband, also my business partner, Ed. And we started making crackers with local or Ontario grains and in whole grain form. And since then, we've sort of, we have expanded into breads and other baked goods. And then on a more personal level, I've sort of become a grain, whole grain, local grain advocate and have done workshops in the States and taught at conferences and even got to travel to England last year to talk about my philosophy and why local grains are so important. And why are local grains so important? So there's a couple of reasons to, from just a straight-up chef perspective. I also have a cooking background. I just think the flavor of uh, grains really have an amazing capacity to express terroir, especially when they're used in the whole grain form because the flavor is in the bran and the endosperm. Um, so they really grains can have really distinctive flavors from area to area. Plus, when you're working with smaller farmers, they have a better ability to grow different varieties and multiple varieties and then you're working with smaller organic farmers a lot of them have a huge interest in heirloom varieties and just like heirloom veggies a lot of heirloom grains have really superior flavor and then from a political perspective i think local food is what gives us autonomy um and gives us diversity and is environmentally sustainable right we we need to preserve farmland we need to support farmers We need to be able to make food choices and not be at the mercy of these huge agricultural businesses that just want to feed us bland commodity crops that are destroying the environment. So it's, it's, you know, there's there's many reasons to support local grains, but I think that one of the easiest access points is just straight up flavor. Yes. It starts with flavor and then it has this whole cascading effect back to the ground. Um, Can you talk a little bit I think most most people have a hard time understanding what we mean when we say that um, when we talk about the commodity grain system and the limited choices that creates both for growers and then for chefs and bakers and everyone along the way. Sure. Um, so when you ask people about local food, you know, they can name all sorts of items that they can buy locally and 
I would bet you a million dollars that wheat is never on that list. Uh, it has been so centralized and commoditized and mistreated <laughs> that it's turned into a bag of dead white stuff that's on every shelf in every market, and nobody has any idea where it came from, how it was processed, who grew it. Um, right? It's just it's just weird. Uh, so when you put the local back into it, suddenly you're talking about you have a sense of place, a sense of history. Uh, suddenly wheat takes on all kinds of dimensions and it, it has flavor when it's used in its whole grain form or even a higher extraction, right? When it's run through the stone mill and lightly sifted, it just, it, it comes alive. It becomes, uh, it becomes food instead of just this weird white stuff that we make sweet things with or bad bread with. Right. And you can populate that as a baker with literal people doing the milling and doing the growing all the way back to the field. So there's that's the difference that I see between a commodity homogenous undertaking and then things that are really individualized. So yep. it it's a little bit easier or a lot easier really in uh using a heritage grain, right? To to get right. some kind of uh identity going. Can you talk about the yep. relationships that you have with the growers and the grains? Sure. Uh, so right now I'm working with primarily with two growers. Um, one is this woman, Shelly Spruitt, of Against the Grain Farms, and she is primarily focused on regional grains, um, different kinds of barley, some interesting wheats, and corn. And then the other grower I work with is Peter Leahy of Maryland Organics, and he grows primarily wheats. Uh, with some rye and buckwheat. Um, so I, I think my relationship with these two people is extremely important. One, they're they're both farmers who have a keen uh, interest in growing different varieties and want to work directly with the end user of the product. So they want feedback. They want to grow different things. Uh, so to be able to work together and be like, well, yeah, let's try this and where can we find seed and you know, doing little test bakes for them and getting feedback. Uh, it's really important. It just gives a huge sense of place and makes me feel connected to the food system. Right, because when you were baking with products from a larger food system, you certainly never would have seen a grower or even a miller. No, not at all. It was just coming in the back of a huge truck, right, being unloaded by the pallet. Right. And in baking, you know, it's, um, there's, I, I was surprised as I researched my book and people would say chagrined, bakers would say with a big bit of shame, I never thought about my main ingredient beyond the bag. And that's, that's not their fault. Um, but a lot of attention is given to the craft and the methods, and it's only recently that we're beginning to look backwards to the craft and the methods that go into the the grain production and the milling itself. Right. Right. Yeah. So, but I've always felt that if you want to call something artisan, to me, that extends all the way down to the ingredients. So if you're making your bread with commodity non-organic roller milled white flour i don't consider your product artisan you know i i, I really draw a line in the sand at that right um, 
you know, regardless of your technique and your background. Uh, you know, technique is great, but at this point, I think food is so political. The earth is in crisis. Uh, we need to be conscientious of what of how we're practicing our business on every level. And and just to be focused on technique and mastery of something is, I find, sort of a conceited and um, very limiting notion if we're not part of the bigger picture. Right. And you can really make an impact. Um, in your sales of food, what kind of dialogues do you have with your customers about the sourcing? Um, all kinds. People, been at a farmer's market, people really come with a lot of their food fears. And because you're, they know it's a slightly alternative place to shop and you are right there behind the table for them to either engage with or they can accost you. <laughs> you get all kinds. Um, but people just have a lot of questions, but a lot of it is based on fear and lack of information. And it's, I'm really happy to engage, but part of me finds it kind of sad that we've somehow reached this state where people are afraid to put food in their mouths. Right. And um, especially when there's so many more important conversations you could be having yes. in your brief moments together. Yes. Yes. It's uh, really focused on individual diets and what they should be avoiding. And and um, I had this conversation earlier today, actually, with somebody about people are still asking about GMO grain. And I mean, I am I am absolutely against GMOs because of seed patenting and, and corporate ownership. But, um, you know, there is no GMO grain on the market, right. right? You can't. And plus, my grains are certified organic. And I do advertise that and people still ask if they're GMO. So it just it just shows that there's just a really big disconnect. Um, I also have really fruitful conversations with, you know, other customers who don't have so many dietary issues and can engage more about local or more about on a, a flavor perspective of like why rye versus buckwheat or why am I not just using regular wheat? You know, so it really, it does run the gamut. Yeah. So, so check soon. out Evelyn's Crackers on Instagram for more info on that and to get mouthwateringly hungry by just looking at the beautiful creations that Dawn makes. Uh, Dawn, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really happy to hear some some more about your work. Oh, thanks, Amy. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to hear the podcast on the, all the podcasts and everyone you interview. Awesome. Thanks, Dawn. All right. Oh, thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. This has been another Women in Grains Food Diary with Amy Halloran, Food Security Case Manager at Unity House. Amy Halloran's work uh, came out of the archives. There's an extensive archive of those food diaries. And to end tonight's show, we Jody Cowan was the youth media sanctuary teaching artist uh, during 2021 and 2022. He's now the associate producer in the National Productions Office at WAMC. And he joins us now to talk about his evolution in media and the arts. Welcome. Hey, well, nice to be back. Nice to be back. It's been a while since you've been actually in this in these studios. You began as a volunteer producer for Hudson Mohawk Magazine before working with youth at Troy Prep. Has media and storytelling always been an aspect of your work? Uh, media, yes, I think. You know, and certainly my work in 
you know, I've done a, a bunch of different jobs throughout the years, but the jobs that I've done in media um, and in radio and in storytelling have all been kind of along this path that was, uh, I guess, started out music oriented, right? I think that was the the original focus, but it was has always been talking to people and like having conversations with people about their process and their art and how people kind of get you know, from point A to point B, especially in the in the context of, of making something and getting it out to the public. There's always something that has always fascinated me. And you did go to the new school for radio. I did. There was the new school of radio and television here in Albany. And um, I took a, at the time they were offering uh, uh, journalism, a news journalism class, and then a radio production class. And I've been kind of torn between the two, the, I'm sorry, it was video journalism. So video journalism specifically, which I, I didn't really think I was into. I was kind of into the idea of radio and this kind of last vestige of, of audio. And I liked, you know, I grew up listening to the radio and I was kind of into the, the local personalities on college radio and was just kind of like intrigued about that world. And, um, and you were a personality on college radio. And I was, and I, and, and this came, this came first. I think I, I did the, um, I did the, the the classes of at the New School of Radio and Television, which then led to um, me kind of falling backwards into a, a, a show position at at SUNY College. I didn't go to SUNY College, but I was on the radio there for a number of years. SUNY Albany. SUNY Albany. Thank you. And um, uh, yeah, it was just and 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 was there for years. It was there for uh, you know. Uh, better part of a decade doing um showcasing local talent and talking to local artists about their craft and um and kind of getting into a a routine of comfort for me and radio that then I got very much away from for a number of years um until pretty much right before the pandemic or kind of around the, the, the pandemic. pandemic right in the middle of the pandemic and um uh, you extended this kind of bridge to get involved with the the, the, the sanctuary for independent media here, and um, twenty twenty one. That's right, and and this place had been on my radar, you know, for a number of years in various capacities and different events that had taken place here. That I was always intrigued by what was happening here, what the the energy around this place, surrounding this place, what kind of events were taking place here, and um, the type of stories that were coming out of this station specifically. I thought were really unique and really kind of. Um, left of the the mainstream news cycle that was kind of happening all the time um so it was it was it was an interesting fit it was again at at that moment was different than what i was kind of used to in the world of college radio um and i think that i relatively quickly kind of got into okay well here this this is this different thing here's this format how do i how can i use this to tell stories that i want to tell and what were some of those stories that gravitated you uh, some of the first ones were, I mean, it was the, I think the big thing during the pandemic, there was a lot of protesting and there was a lot of, um, kind of social, um, action that was happening, um, and a lot of civil unrest that was happening. And I, I, I kind of came to the station with this idea of like being kind of, I, I needed to, I had spent a period of time tuning out from media and tuning out from the news of the day and the whatever the state sanctioned killing of the day was and and kind of like I needed to just be removed from that whole thing so I was just consuming it and taking it all in it was affecting my health and affecting my mental health and my physical health and my just everyday well-being and uh but then at some point it occurred to me that doing nothing was also not helpful to my soul and my mind so I felt like being able to be 
to, to not just consume the media, but to kind of get in a position where I could help produce it and help kind of be on the storytelling side of that and pursue maybe some things that I was kind of interested in um, was was really nice to be able to do that. And I think one of the first things that I, I kind of got into was this, uh, there was the the what they refer to as the stop Asian hate rally, but I think it's more of like a like a white aggression kind of thing that we were trying to stop there. But um, but this rally for a bunch of people that I was able to go and, and, and interview people. And it was my first experience like with my phone, you know, especially in the middle of the pandemic, kind of coming out of this kind of forced quarantine to now here's a park full of a hundred plus people, hundreds of people. And I could talk to all of them if I wanted to, you know? Um, and, and after a, a quick check of myself and my excitement level at this kind of somber rally of sorts, you know, I, I, I kind of recalibrated and, and, and was able to talk to people and, and edit this thing together and, uh, and then air it and, uh, here on this station, on this show. And, and that whole process was very cathartic and felt really, um, like, yes, this is closer to what I should be doing. Feel is like what I should be doing. And how did you translate that those learning tools to the youth at Troy Prep as uh, when you were doing the teaching artist as Youth Media Sanctuary? That was a really interesting process because, admittingly, um, a lot of the stuff that I feel like I brought to the table, I was just kind of grasping how I – here's a bunch of stuff that I knew – but was just getting to apply for the first time. And almost in at that same exact time, I was then in this position to then teach these tools to, to a high school level, you know, group of kids. And um, luckily for me, that the nature of this program and how great these kids were, it was really just a continuation of just conversation, right? And we were talking and it was talking about, and it was, again, just asking questions, me asking them, you know, what are you listening to? What are you hearing? What are you consuming? And then kind of breaking down what it was that we were listening to, what it was they were um, listening to, the messaging that was in, some of the things that they were kind of taking in on a regular day, inside and outside of the news. This was like kind of like propaganda on the, you know, school stuff that was on the wall, posters, that kind of stuff, just like everyday things that were that they were taking in and getting them kind of to look more objectively at the world around them, right? And um, and then from there, with this kind of critical lens that we might not have been looking at before, how do we share that? How do we then be comfortable to talk about that on a microphone, ask questions of others on a microphone, and um, and and turn that into a story that has beginning, middle, and end, which I'm still working on a little bit. And all of this led to you now working at WAMC. What's your role there? So currently I am a, an associate producer uh, in the National Productions Office, like you said. There's two shows in particular that I'm working on, uh, 51%, which is a focus on women's issues and um, women experts in various fields, and the best of our knowledge, which is uh, focused on research, education, and kind of the emerging uh, information on all things. And um, it's it's been a wild adventure, and it's it's wildly different than what I was doing here with the sanctuary. But where those tools all all kind of combine for that is in this curious nature that I feel like I've always had um, this ability to uh, kind of find okay, this is an, this is an interesting. There is an interesting story here. Let's go find out what that might be, right? And um, what I'm finding myself doing more so now is. Um, kind of a fine line between production and reporting, kind of a, a nice mix of of going out into the world, chasing stories down, sometimes being sent to various places to kind of capture audio for a thing or, or hey, this event's happening, let's go down there and see who we can talk to. Um, 
and just being kind of like present where the stories are happening to kind of capture that moment. And the timeline of, of your stories is so different. You have a different, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, urgency in finding stories and pursuing stories. How do you now navigate like finding stories differently? What is that process? What's been interesting to get into here, and I think that there's certainly a parallel between, you know, this station and the other station is this idea of of all the news stories are kind of as strong as our network, right? So at any given day, how I kind of start my office day would be to go into the office and check my email. And, uh, you know, here's here's five to a thousand emails of all these different events that are happening, all these different things that could happen. This group over here has got a new building they're unveiling. This author over here has got a new book that just came out. And here are all these people that want us to talk about it. So I think having... The difference here now I find myself in is being in this place with this reach that people are kind of sending inquiries to us. And so I'm, I'm doing a little bit less of finding these stories and, um, and, and really digging for, you know, these events as opposed to people kind of sending the thing to me or to our office to be like, hey, this is happening, come cover it. And then there's the different uh, urgency of, okay, this is happening, maybe it's happening tomorrow, Uh but I have a show that airs once a week. So it's like if I get to that event, record it, talk to people, do the interview, then I got to produce it, try to turn around for that week to get it in that week if it's a timely thing, or wait till the next kind of thematic fit for it. It's been interesting. Fortunately, we are running out of time, but Jody Cowan, you can hear um, his work on WAMC. But before we go, we do have a great um new batch of producers coming on this week. So what kind of advice could you share with those who are just finding their voice and skill set in grassroots journalism? Number one, I would just say stay curious, you know, look for, you know, opportunities to kind of tell stories and ask questions and 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 dig deeper all the time because there's always another angle, there's always another level, there's always another version of the story. And I feel like there's there's always different ways to kind of capture all of that. Um, I would also say something that I found immensely important is just keeping, um, you know, keeping good communication with people, remaining um, in contact with contacts, you know, and, and maintaining relationships with people. Um, the, one of the reasons that I have the job with WAMC I have now is is maintaining a relationship with somebody who I went to the new school ra- uh, radio and television with that that just kind of happened now 20 years later. So just being able to, you know, you never, they say you never know, you know, who you're going to meet out there and the same folks just meet on the way up, you're going to see on the way back down. So it's just kind of maintaining an even um, respectful, positive relationship with the people you come in contact with. Well, thank you so much, Jody Cowan, for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. My pleasure. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episodes are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Eunice Jung, and Amy Halloran. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.